Jackie Tan and welcome to the Bodies Built Better podcast. On the show, we chat with experts, athletes, coaches and authors to educate and inspire you. We explore the body's incredible ability to heal, adapt and evolve so you can crush limitations, reconnect your body and mind and discover your extraordinary potential. Today on the show, I chat with Australian mountain running champion, personal trainer and running coach and mental health advocate, Simone Brick. Only having been on the running scene a short while in running terms, she's accumulated accolades most of us would only dream of. She ran her first marathon in 2015 and cracked sub three and a half hours. She's Australian mountain running champ 2018 and 2019. She came first at the New Zealand Mountain Running Championship 2019, second in the Ultra Trail Australia 2019. But what you may not know is that Simone has battled with depression, anxiety, eating disorders, psychosis, all of which has seen her move through hospitals and treatment centres and had at one stage been written off as too far gone. Simone's incredible strength and determination to back herself and come through the other side is truly inspiring. This bright and spirited runner will help you see that your darkest hours will only give way to the brightest days if you fight for them. I'm truly grateful to Simone. Her willingness to share her experience and to help others is inspiring, admirable, and vitally important to help others dealing with their dark days. So whilst this conversation is incredibly inspiring, I do want to let you guys know that the conversation does get dark and if you're not in a place that can that can hear um, and not be triggered then maybe wait till you're in a better position to hear this episode this episode is in two parts and incredibly worth the listen this first part here we talk about Simone's early days and her battles In the second part, we do talk about how she incredibly got through it all, how running has been a big part of her life, her successes through running, but also how she manages her mental health through different strategies. And whilst running plays a big part in that, it is not the one strategy that gets her through. So she doesn't rely solely on on running, which is a really important message to, to convey as well. So enjoy this inspiring conversation with the extraordinary Simone Brick. Simone, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm pretty excited to chat with you because originally when I thought about having you on the show, it was because of all your incredible running achievements. Just to name a few, you came first in the New Zealand Mountain Running Championships in 2019, the Two Bays Trail Run 28K 2019 and 2020. And second, (laughs) in the Ultra Trail Australia Pace 22 in 2018. And then I read about you and found out you've 
you've had some pretty heavy mental health battles and you just became even more incredible to me. (laughs) So to give listeners a bit of background on you and how you became this incredible woman, um, let's start from the beginning, you growing up and what that was like for you. Yeah, sure. Thanks for having me on, Jackie. And um, yeah, like I suppose in many ways, I'm just a normal human, but just with a lot of life experience, I suppose, not being as old as I sometimes feel. Um, But yeah, so growing up, I was, I'm I'm the second youngest of seven kids, which I feel like explains a lot of my story (laughs) just on its own right there. Um, because yeah competition and sport and everything that comes along with being a big part of a big family was just my life growing up Um, and yeah I can't say that it was the happiest childhood or the most carefree but at the same time it was it was I was loved I was sheltered I was cared for I was um, had a lot of things going for me and a lot of different privileges that I can definitely see now Um, but yeah, I was the sportiest kid you knew. I was a tomboy and a half. I was, because um, I grew up, I've got the four siblings closest in age to me are all brothers. So I just pretty much just tr- tried to become one of the boys. Um, I did every sport under the sun except running. I hated running with a passion. Um, oh, wow. I was one of those kids that, yeah, running was the punishment for not getting the ball in the hoop or the ball in the back of the net. <laughs> um, yeah, soccer and basketball were probably my two biggest loves, swimming for a while. Um, but yeah, sport was always my sort of solace. It was always where I went to sort of um, feel like everything was right with the world. And yeah, that sort of continued right up until teenage years. But I suppose the other part of that context is that I was always very, very big in comparison to other people growing up, um, which I now know after finally being diagnosed years after the fact is um, I had PCOS, um, so polycystic ovary syndrome. And so I was like, I was an 80 kilo, 12 year old. Um, and didn't know why or what was going on or why my body was reacting differently to foods um, that everyone else was. I was also, yeah, lactose intolerant and wow. undiagnosed celiac and all sorts of things yeah. that um, just uh, were very confusing at the time because I didn't Absolutely. know that any of them were even there or why. All I knew was other people would eat food, I would eat the same thing and different things would happen to my body compared to theirs. Um, so that was a, probably a big struggle throughout my teenage years that just you don't no one needs extra struggles as a teenager life's hard enough um but yeah so high school to be honest I hated it I loved parts of it but I hated it um and then I was I suppose I in many ways gave up a lot of sport at the tip at the typical age that a lot of women do hence why I'm now pretty passionate about trying to keep girls in sport because yeah from about 15 to 19 20 I didn't do much um I kept up a little bit here and there but um didn't stay too engaged other than my lovely soccer family that I had going um but as a result of that and year 12 and all that I got very 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 overweight to the point that my asthma I was being hospitalized for asthma and all sorts of stuff um going on and my doctor was telling me to lose weight and lo and behold like having had I suppose trauma from my childhood and then also lots of struggles with food throughout um, my teenage years that were nothing to do with like I I ate normally despite them in many ways but they were still very confusing so it kind of all manifested in a gap year where 
I decided I was going to get my life in order and make everything perfect and went the wrong way very much so about losing weight and tell you what there's a lesson and a half in that about the value of nutrition because once my brain didn't have enough nutrition and I had that like that just inability to cope with life or to function or to be like I went from someone who was close to ducks to the class and like very high ATAR very smart like I was absolute brainiac on side of being a sporty person but then um to not being able to do anything like my brain just did not function I like it's just insane to think the thoughts that I had at that point in time and I can see now that it's purely because my, my brain didn't have what it needed to actually see? function properly um but it's scary and it's creepy and it's it's like it took forever to come back from um in so many ways but yeah Did so get an idea what what were, were did you like stop eating altogether and like very minimally or was it just Pretty, really bad food I no, so I yeah I'm I'm not one a person that does anything by halves yeah um and so pretty much from the day um which I in many ways I hate talking about weights but at the same time it gives people an idea of where I was going from and to um so from the day I started deciding that time was time to get my shit together and lose a bit of weight because the doctor told me I'd and I'd had another bad asthma attack and I could hardly get up the stairs and just was not fit at all um from that day for the next I think it took me took me eight months to lose about 50 kilos and so I've pretty much from that day forward didn't eat three meals in a day for almost a year but I also would go like this is just no one I'm hoping no one listens to this that would ever try this or is in a bad way in that way but I'll have can give you different advice on that later exactly. but I would go sort of seven days with only having 500 mils of water a day and that was it um and I get to the point of yeah I was fainting I was all over the place but I was in my mind the worse I felt the better I was doing or the fuck like it to me it was all a mathematical equation like it was all science I was like the less I eat the more weight I lose I need to lose weight therefore I'll eat less um I just took that to the next extreme because I wanted to do it fast because it seemed like the least painful way to do it um not having any idea about the effects of malnutrition on the brain and the body yeah but you um, just see the numbers right you see the, the yeah exactly and go, it, the hard thing the is that, that you're doing it well, the hard thing is in the society we live, it's like I was getting applauded for the first exactly. four, four or five months until people realised, hang on a second, this diet's going a little bit too well. Yeah. Um, like it took until I lost the first 30 kilos for people to go, whoa, hang on a second, a how much more is coming off? Um, mm. And to realise this that, is really quick. Yeah, exactly. To realise I'd done that in a very short period of time um, and that I'd gotten my first full-time job and that was not a good job to have I was not helping myself in many ways but then I was stuck in very bad environments and um, in many different areas of life as well and because I deferred study so I didn't have study to distract me or anything either um, and so I took it in many ways all out on myself for after a while because it just seemed like I was the one doing everything to destroy my own life it wasn't and that's what six months eight, seven months after I sort of started losing the weight, I had my, like I attempted suicide for the first time. Um, and that obviously got a bit more attention from the medical teams, but at the same time, it very much taught me that the, the system 
in a lot of ways and I feel for anyone still in it although I have been told it is in some ways improving at times is a bit broken um, in that I was essentially I was in ACU so acute cardiac unit in ICU for a few days and then just sent straight home because there was no beds uh, well I was told that my weight didn't wasn't yet low enough for me to qualify for a bed for help for my eating disorder so which was that prior to the suicide attempt that was after that was after that was after yeah so that was while I was in hospital having recovered um I had lots going wrong I, my heart and liver were all over the place but yeah I'd, I'd at that point and my weight was still technically within the healthy range it was just that I'd lost about 35 kilos in a very short period of time um, so they knew that I had something that I had an eating disorder and they knew that things were wrong but at the same time there's not there's almost no beds hospital beds um, that are actually for people with eating disorders and so I was literally told it's like you, you're going on the waiting list for the outpatient which could be three to six months and you're going home because you, your weight isn't low enough was what I was told and so in my mind I was being sent home because I didn't I wasn't as good at losing weight as I should have been and so I was too fat for an eating disorder bed was exactly what I said to my mother um, in my very malnourished state but um, in from there onwards I was actually like the next two months were probably the worst two months of my life, more for the fact that they destroyed my family's sort of life in that period of time more than mine. Cause I just kind of, I very much gave up. I lay on the couch. I didn't do anything. I still pretty much refused to eat. Mum would come and bring me rice crackers or whatever she could actually get me to put in my mouth for the next two months. And I just kept losing weight until the point that I was one of the lucky ones in the way that, that me being on the waiting list because I just happened to live in the area that's the catchment area for the one of the best um, outpatient programs, the Butterfly Day program. Um, I just happened to live in the area, so I was bumped up the list and therefore I only waited two months to get into the program. But then in the two months between being discharged from the hospital and put on the waiting list and then actually getting into the program, my weight had dropped enough that I would have been hospitalised in the first place um, if I'd had it been two months earlier sort of thing so it was like I deteriorated to such a degree that it by then I was like very medically compromised um which wasn't obvious like that I don't remember much to be honest I can remember sitting on the couch mum would put movies on and I'd color in and that was about it that was my days for weeks and months on end um until I finally got into the program and then the day program was life-saving but it was it was hard it was literally like going to school so it was like school hours and you eat your meals and they do all sorts of things though they do self-identity lessons they do goal setting they do problem solving all sorts of life skills that anyone should have really um anyone could benefit but yeah I spent eight months in there so it took me eight months to regain I think only about 10 of the kilos that I'd lost to put myself back in a healthy weight range um and within there, there was lots of ups and downs of that one. Um, but that like overcoming an eating disorder purely because of it literally makes your brain like malfunction in such a way that you can't help yourself. And you have like, I recognize now then, and thankfully it didn't take me too long, like six months probably for me to realize that 
the people that were trying to help, yes, they'd take all your power, all your dignity, everything away from you. Like I didn't have a say in when I went to bed, when I woke up, what I ate, when I ate, I'd go to the bathroom and someone would have to follow me to the bathroom. And this was months and months and months on end. And I was a 19 year old going on 20 and I had my car taken off me. I had everything everywhere. I had to go. Mum had to come. Like it was, I had a chauffeur everywhere. Like felt like I was being a three-year-old and for a, for a period of time there, I know I was acting like one as well. Um, because my brain just didn't have the capacity to comprehend many things. Um, but I could see eventually that they were taking all that power away from me because that also took all the power away from the eating disorder. And then they were slowly would give it back when they could tell it was me that was taking it back, not the eating disorder. So what did that look like? What that looked like? Um, what it looked like was like they'd... We'd, we'd get ev literally everything taken away in the program and everyone would be on different meal plans and different um, uh, abilities to do things for themselves or have things done for them. And so like when I first went into the program, we had to, I had to have someone sitting next to me watching me measure every single, like every teaspoon of butter that went on the bread. I had every piece of bread measured to make sure it was the right size. Um, everything was checked off. I had to, sh like if I was drinking a can, if I was drinking a juice box, they had to open it up and check it was empty at the end. Um, if I went to the bathroom, I was accompanied to the bathroom and those sorts of things at the start. Um, so you literally never left on your own. And there's many, many rules that they make you follow so that you follow their rules and not the eating disorder rules. So things like I wasn't allowed to take a sip of water between every single mouthful, or I wasn't allowed to, if I had a muesli bar, I could break it in half once, but then I just had to eat it and I wasn't allowed to pick at it and those sorts of things, um, which can very much become dominating rules in an eating disorder. But then eventually over time, when you showed that you were able to actually follow the rules, eat your meal plan, um, and that your weight was progressing in the direction that they wanted it to, like it was going wherever they wanted, whether that was maintaining or gaining, or because we had different girls with different eating disorders in there. Um, then over time, you would have the freedom to make your sandwich, but not have someone watching how much you were putting on the sandwich constantly, or you'd go, go hell, I remember the day I could finally go to the bathroom without someone following me, it was glorious. <laughs> Um, and then, or th just little things like that, or, um, and slowly we'd progress out of the program. So rather than attending sort of five days a week, we'd attend four, then three. Um, and I finally got my car keys given back to me and all those like sorts of things where, but as soon as that was always on the proviso that if you went backwards at all, it just got taken straight, straight back. So if I was all of a sudden I was checked and I had made my sandwich with less items than I was supposed to have on the sandwich or something like that. All of a sudden I'd be put back on monitoring. Yeah, you were there most of the days and they'd do things like they'd take us on food challenges and stuff. So everything that was ever nightmare to someone with anorexia, well, with any eating disorder really, really but um, they would take us to Macca's, they'd take us to Subway, they'd take us to the movies and we'd eat muffins and stuff and try and just reintegrate us into society by while eating normally, not that a bunch of us were walking around and there was one time I threw an absolute hissy fit in a cafe and so it probably wouldn't wouldn't have looked normal at all but at the same time it was good because it sort of taught us to sort of be around people and socialize and everything as well um take us yeah. through that you're in the cafe and you're expected to order your own yeah so we're go, given... this is what you're ordering go do it the... go eat it the dietitian comes with us. Um, so there was a dietitian with us for every food challenge and we'd essentially be given a select part of the menu to order from. 
So we were told maybe that we were going this this particular day, we were going to a cafe where we're either allowed to order one of the full main meals or one of the toasted sandwiches. Um, and I went for the toasted sandwich, but then I was gluten-free because I'm celiac. And so they had to put it on gluten-free bread. And then this just shows you what the sort of rules were like, which I understand because the gluten-free bread in size was a lot smaller than the sourdough. Right. And so what they got the cafe to do was rather than give me one, it was a chicken and avocado sandwich and it was really thick. And once instead of giving me one chicken and avocado sandwich, they gave me two right. um, because the bread was smaller. And in my mind at that point in time, I just thought that was the most unfair thing in the world. And there was no way that I could eat two sandwiches and it was stupid. And so I absolutely lost it. Um, and I just pretty, I've just almost re pretty much refused to eat. I ate, I remember eating some of it, but then essentially what happens is if we go on a food challenge and then we get back to the house, cause it was, it's near a big shopping center. Um, then if when we get back, if we had, if we didn't comply or we didn't eat all of the meal that when we were out, we had to have a supplement, which is just, just a disgusting drink of like milk sort of thing with like a whole heap of calories in a short, in a yep. small amount of milk. Um, it's called Ensure or they do Ensure or 47. And anyways, it's a supplement, it's a meal replacement and you had to just stand there and drink it. And it was literally, you knew, like everyone knew they would pour out just enough to replace every single calorie you would have missed by skipping the food just to take away that idea that you're going to get away with not eating it mm. sort of thing. And it's like, why not eat the delicious chicken and exactly. avocado sandwich <laughs> that was made for you at a very nice cafe rather yeah. than go back and be forced to drink this disgusting milk drink. Yeah. Um, but to somewhat like in the environment, yeah, I just couldn't, couldn't handle it that day. But yeah, that's the sort of thing that they would do. And then we'd get back and we, we would have a lot of support in the fact that they'd be beside us the whole time and they'd be like here's why we're pouring you this drink here's what you've got to do and you're not allowed to do anything and if you didn't comply to that you were literally just sent home for the day um so you weren't allowed to be in the program and so there was one point in particular that I actually got kicked out of the program for a week because I wasn't complying um and I was breaking a lot of the rules or just trying to get around them and in that week they pretty much said if, if I, I had to go home and gain weight in that week or I would be sent to hospital. Um, so that was possibly one of the hardest weeks of my entire life um, purely because I sat there and I forced myself. It was the first time I learned like that delayed gratification, I suppose, in a way, because I um, sat there and six times a day because I had six meals per day to eat because I was that, I was very underweight at this point in time. So I had a lot of food to get in. Um, and so six times a day for seven days, I just bawled my eyes out in front of my food. Mum would sit next to me for that whole time and then she'd just put movie after movie after movie on in between to try and distract me. Um, blessed woman. She, um, but then the, we got there and I was convinced I had ballooned out and I had gained kilo after kilo that week and I was absolutely at wit's end freaking out every second. <laughs> but then I got back a week later and they weighed me and I had to gain to stay in the program, I, I had to gain half a kilo. I had to gain 500 grams in seven days to stay in the program, um, which I was convinced I'd gained a whole heap, but I was also scared that I'd gained it all and that sort of thing. Um, and then I remember getting in and they weighed me and they weigh you in the nude, but um, I gained literally exactly 500 grams. And I still don't know how my body managed to do that, but which I'd like, I'd followed the meal plan and it was the first time that I'd followed the meal plan and exactly what they said would happen happened. Cause they're like, you follow this, you're going to gain 500 grams. And I followed it and I gained 500 grams. And it was the first time that 
I'd gained weight and I was actually relieved that it had happened because I'd put in so much work into actually trying to do that. And in the context of life now and in the context of many people's life, it's like I gained half a kilo in, in like over the day with what I eat. It's like, it's no big deal. Mm. But for me at that point in time, it was literally everything. And so from there onwards, I did actually progress a lot more because I learned to trust other people in what they were trying to do to help me um, at that point in time. But so that was that was sort of the start of me progressing out of the program and actually getting enough nutrition in to sort of deal with everything else because I got out and life was really good for a, for a short period of time. But yeah, it um, the eating disorder for me was just a manifestation of a lot of other problems and a lot of other mental health issues behind it that triggered it off and then the malnutrition kind of sent the cascade going down but then once I came back out of it um I suppose for on and off for the next few years I still had a few troubles with food but I thought I'd learned not to cope with my mental health using food anymore um and I turned to a lot of other detrimental things over the years but at the same time I'd never went back to because that the eating disorder wasn't and it's the case for many people an eating disorder isn't often isn't it and it's in and in itself the problem there'll be another problem causing food to become an issue that then once you melt got not enough nutrition and everything like that then it becomes that food is the issue that will kill you very quickly mm, yeah but it's not what's causing the distress at the end when of the day. did you realize that 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 um, wasn't the problem I think a few months after I got out of butterfly and I was still eating quite well my weight was still healthy and I was miserable um and so it was it only took from the time I got out of butterfly in May or June it only took until about August for me to or not even August June July it only took a couple of months for me to then I'd never actually up until that point I'd never been in a psych hospital um but it only took two months for me out of the program for me to be hospitalized with severe depression for I think Geez, the first one might have even been four weeks, seven weeks, something like that. Um, and then that actually ended up just spiraling downwards. I can think of, I, I, I try not to blame anyone or anything, but at the same time, I can see so many mistakes that were made, um, both by me, but also with the amount of medications I was given and addicted to and all sorts of things along the way that um, I spiraled very quickly both in my, the depression because I would just I can I would think I went a two-week period there where I just didn't didn't get out of bed I didn't do a thing it took me two weeks to take a shower um sort of thing and I was in hospital that whole time and couldn't have given two shits like it just no, I wasn't doing anything um I was self-harming quite heavily at that point in time too and that's kind of what I turned to after the food during the food as well but more so after during the eating disorder I should say um but yeah and eventually uh, who knows, like, uh, this is the sort of thing where I look at my past and I go, okay, this literally feels like it could have been anyone. I know that there's a lot of things along the way from both from early childhood and then upwards um, that like put everything into sort of the position it was in. Um, but then I eventually progressed, the depression enters anxiety, progressed to psychosis. Um, so I was not able to be hospitalized in a private hospital so essentially the way the system works is there's private hospital mental health hospitals and public um, and the private's always voluntary so you have to volunteer like you, you can't be held there there is a few there's a very select few beds in a private system 
that are involuntary. But usually as soon as you get bad enough to be involuntary, you just get shipped from the private hospital to the public hospital. Um, and I tell you what, I don't know how anyone could ever long-term recover from a mental health problem in the public hospital. And I have immense respect for anyone that can or does, because it's, it's just, it's, it's a system that tries its best under the most horrible of circumstances often. Um, so I, yeah, I was in, I developed so, like full-blown psychotic break for a while there. Um, and I was in public hospital in seclusion in sort of the ICU of, I think it's the HDU is what they call it, high dependency unit in terms of mental health. Um, there's an antipsychotic medication called Seroquel that my psychiatrist at the time that I still do this blows even my mind at the time, but I was taking what would be, what would pretty much sedate any human. Um, I was taking like 1,200 milligrams a day of it, which I could give you 12 and a half milligrams and it would put you to sleep. It's a very, um, so what high. was the point of this high dosage? Was it to like sedate you so much that you don't want to harm yourself? Like what, what's yeah, the so theory it, behind dosing you that high? Well, this was that my psychiatrist at the times um, sort of method, I suppose, in a way of trying to contain me uh, in many ways. I was just, I was essentially living life chemically sedated because um, I'd take it. It was a thing that you'd normally give someone at night because it would put you to sleep, but I would take 600 milligrams as soon as I woke up in the morning. And so then I'd be going through the day in such a fog and I, I literally couldn't do anything, but because I couldn't do anything, I also wasn't as explosive or I wouldn't self-harm as bad usually. Um, and, but then I would take another 600 milligrams at night as well as two or three different sleeping tablets to, to, in order to actually sleep because I just, I was sleeping maybe two hours a night usually um, unless I took very high doses of um, different sleeping meds and stuff. And so I was like, my, my entire body was a mess. And looking back now, I think, I definitely think partially that was because I was on such incredibly high doses of medications, but it was one of those spiral, another spiraling cascade in a way of, I was very, at times very, um, like I was so suicidal at times that it was like they needed to do something to save my life. But then at the same time, that kind of would continue onwards because they they didn't want me going backwards. Yeah. But it like it, it wasn't anything that was ever going to end well. Um, and so it did like it it did culminate in me essentially ending up in like full sedation, like they, where they they would inject me with sedatives just to put me to sleep for the whole like 24 hours. I don't know how long I was out for at those points in times, but I was in restraints. I was in the white padded rooms. I was yeah. those sorts of things that you hear about in stories and you go, yeah, that happens to other people. And as an 18 year old, I would have told you that that happened to other people. I probably would have been one of the obnoxious teenagers that would laugh at them because I didn't know any better. Yeah. Um, but now it was like, then all of a sudden, two years later, it was me. Um, yeah. And so, so had you attempted suicide again? And that's why. Multiple times. So some of them, in many ways, the, there was probably in my life, in, in that period of time, there was three serious attempts. And the last one was why I was fully um, restrained and everything. Because I was at, so I, and I'm, I have the poems and I have artworks and I have everything from that point in time that explains, and I still can remember that period of time but I remember it as if I'm sort of floating above myself it's that whole dissociate dissociation yeah. um idea and so I got transferred hospitals and put in a HDU in Dandenong um and from there I spent about a I think about a week in there um and it's essentially they just let you sort of 
calm down and debrief. And for me, the way that it worked was that because my 20th birthday passed, which was the big focus of my psychotic episode, my 20th birthday passed and my mum and dad were still coming to visit, um, which I can't even imagine what it was like for them. Because to get into this high dependency unit, they had to go through like three different barricaded locked doors. And there was like, Literally, if something went wrong in there, there was like the SWAT team would come in. Like they had the shields and the black covers and everything. Like it was because there was there was people in there that was I was the only one in there at the time um, that wasn't actually a drug addict withdrawing from ice. Um, So I think there were six of us in there and everyone else was on drug withdrawal, which was quite a scary experience in itself. But at the same time, I felt in some way safe around them because patients very rarely or when I was there they wouldn't lash out at other patients but they lashed out at the staff a lot um so did you so see them lash out yeah definitely saw like more than just more on more than one occasion other people in there would absolutely lose it um but it's yeah it, there because there's it's I think we had one nurse to one patient ratio um or maybe even at times there was it seemed like there was more nurses than patients so um there was a lot of people in there for support in many ways, but you were just constantly watched. Um, And I slowly came out of it through the realization that mum and dad were still coming to visit. Other people hadn't died and the world hadn't ended because I turned 20. Um, And so I wasn't in any ways in a good way, but at the same time, I was able to go home rather than go back to my private hospital. um, I was able to go home because I had mum and dad there and because I had constant support through them. Um, and so from there, it still was, I went and saw my, my, my psychiatrist at the time about a week later. And that was my big aha moment of going to see him and him kind of looking at the report of everything that had happened. Cause, because I'd shifted to the public system for that two, three week period of time, he hadn't, didn't have any input into what was going on. Um, so I went back and saw him and I just remember him literally turning to me and going, Simone, this is fucked up. And I was like, well, yeah, you're telling me. Like, <laughs> I've been there. <laughs> it's like, you're the one that's supposed to be helping me. Um, exactly. Like, what's going on here? And it was like, that. I just had a very lucid moment in that moment of going, why, the, what, why are you telling me this is fucked up? Like, mm-hmm. I'm the one that's supposed to be telling you this shit. And so it was only a week later that I switched psychiatrist. Um, and the first thing my next psychiatrist did was he admitted me to hospital for a Oh, it was over two and a half months, I think, in the end to detox me off everything I was addicted to that was all prescription meds, but I was proper addicted to a lot of them. Yeah. And then all the antipsychotics and all the medications. So he weaned me slowly over two and a bit months of everything. Yeah. What are the symptoms of coming off such high dosage? Oh, (laughs) depends on the medication. Yeah. Um, Different antidepressants have different things. There's lovely things coming off something like Pristique called brain zaps, where it literally just feels like there's like a shock that goes through your head and all of a sudden you're like, hang on, where am I? What am I doing? Um, And you can't quite function very well. Coming off Seroquel. How often does that happen? Or depends how quickly you're coming off or like how much they're titrating it and stuff. So I kind of knew it was... I was coming off it too quickly if it happened too much. Um, But then coming off things like Seroquel, to be honest, it was just a long, painful process of everything, all the depression, all the anxiety. You slowly start to feel everything again. And initially it's a very intense return of emotion. Um, And so that in itself, that's why I had to do it in hospital because that itself is hard to deal with of going, hang on, I'm feeling things again and I'm not a sedated zombie all the time. Um, Can I ask a question just before you go on? Yeah. Back when you were with, was it Butterfly? 
Yeah. You mentioned that they would slowly return things to you. So at that point, you're not on high dose medication. So when they gave you back, say, your car, do you remember the emotions of that? Yes, but I think at that point in time, because I'd had like it, everything was an emotional roller coaster at that point in time, because I was always feeling like I didn't have anything dulled down. I wasn't on any medications at all. Actually, I was on one antidepressant at that point, um, but I wasn't on any other medication. So nothing was dulled. So I, 100% I remember the, the pride and joy and all those sorts yeah. of things, also the fear. Um, but I was also at the same time, I'd constantly been feeling like a highs and lows in the on a daily basis so that felt it wasn't completely like this rush of, of all of a sudden yeah, I can feel things again yeah. yeah so coming off the medications and the sedation it's very much it is very overwhelming and it's mm-hmm. it's like it's you don't you, it's very hard because you know I no longer knew what's fear what's anxiety what's happiness what's joy like what's the difference between everything yeah. um and it can go very high very low all the time so I, I was like there was some weeks I was better some weeks I was worse but I still essentially he got me off all the medication or well he got me off the antipsychotic first Seroquel the one that I was on way too high doses of um and he kept me on the sleeping medications because I needed to sleep and I wasn't sleeping any other way and insomnia was worse than the medications at that point in time um but then because of coming off all my other medications I did fall into a very very deep depression very quickly and I ended up getting ECT. I don't know if you've heard of ECT, but it's called, it's electroconvulsive therapy. Um, horrible reference, but the, the one flew over the cuckoo's nest, if you've seen it before, where they zap, they put a zapper on both sides of the guy's head. Um, what they do is they induce a seizure in you with electrodes um, by putting them on either side of your head. So you're put to sleep and then they induce a seizure. And the scary thing is no one knows how the hell this thing works, but it's beautiful because it does. Um, wow so it changes moods it, it's it's very scary at the same time because you're literally put to sleep you know you're about to have a seizure but it's a controlled seizure um but then so I ended up having that the bad side of that is that you get memory loss the other bad side of that which comes into the medication withdrawal is that I was still on the med on the sleeping tablets right up until they decided that I was having emergency ECT so it was very quickly I was put through the process of in two days time, you're having ECT. It had to be in two days time because you cannot have ECT while being on benzodiazepines. And so I had to go, I had to cold turkey essentially off benzodiazepines, which was which off high doses of sleeping tablets and like was temazepam and Valium I was trying to come off. Um, but I was in hospital, which is what made that possible because that was, I don't think I slept for 40 something hours. And I can just remember that was, very much the feeling of I need them, give me the drugs, just give me the drugs, just I'm, I'm, I've got a headache, I'm sweating, like just just give them to me, like shaking in the corner kind of withdrawal stuff. Mm. Um, and so that was a rough couple of days there of very acute withdrawal. Um, obviously, I was very carefully monitored. No one did anything bad in that instance. Yeah. It was very good in the long term, but it was very rough um, to go through. And then I had the ECT. Um, but the side effect of ECT is that you have memory loss, so that I only lasted about five treatments. I think you're supposed to have 12. You have it three times a week for four weeks. Um, but oh, I only wow. lasted. Yeah. So it's a long-term thing. Like it's, it's a long thing, but I had about four treatments and I had felt enough of a boost in my mood to go, okay, this is scary. And I feel a little bit better. So I don't want anymore. 
Um, and I'd been in hospital at that point for about eight, nine weeks. And so I was just like, just, just let me go home. Just don't want to go home. Um, and so from that point onwards, I did. I managed to sort of stay out of hospital for the next few months. And then I ended up having, that was where I started like, in this period of time, in that time in hospital and one admission before is where I sort of started running um, every now and again, when I had sort of either the energy, the wherewithal or the ability, I would go for a run. Um, and that was helping sort of mediate the withdrawal symptoms and all sorts of stuff. Um, and so after I got out of hospital that time, which I then started training for my first marathon, because I kind of in my head, I was like, well, the eating disorder was the hardest thing I've ever been through. So it was like psychosis and all this sort of stuff that I've actually managed to live through um, uh, multiple suicide attempts that put me on death's door. And then I was like, well, what's the hardest thing someone can do physically? I hate running. Let's run. Um, which at that point in time, I didn't hate running so much, obviously. But I started training. That was in May. And I started training for a marathon that November. Um, I didn't know any of these big marathons existed. So it was a tiny little marathon that turns out it was on a trail. So big things that probably uh, <laughs> um, led to future future yeah. um, stuff. But um, yeah, so I started training for that marathon and that I reckon like it helped, it gave me something to do every day or to like work towards. Um, I still ended up, the ECT only kept me in good stead for a couple of months before I ended up back in hospital, but in a research trial this time for magnetic seizure therapy it does the same thing as ect but they use a magnet to induce the seizure instead of electric electrodes and therefore it doesn't have memory side effects or at least i found it didn't have any side effect for my memory so it was much easier to bear um so i had that as part of a research trial and that was five weeks because i had 15 treatments um three times a week so i've now learned that i love general anesthetic like the an <laughs> any of the anesthetics where they put you to sleep like i feel like i've had the best sleep in the world exactly. and i know the feeling of going under like way too well because i've had not just that round but a year later i had another round so i reckon i've had like 60 anesthetics in my life yeah. um but yeah so i had i had that in actually in september so october so just before the marathon i think i finished it just before i ran my first marathon um and so i was going through all that in the process of running that marathon and then I actually completed the marathon and I did what I promised on my doctors in the fact that I ran the marathon and I didn't lose an ounce of weight in the process of running the marathon. Um, so I was quite proud of because that was half the mission was because I was still yeah. not perfect with food. I was still at times like at that point in time, which probably in some ways did a good job of training my gut of my mind would have a slip up where I wouldn't let myself eat enough for what I was meant to run the next day. And I might have a 30K run because I was training for a marathon. But then I would end up because I then I had the part of the healthy part of me battling to try and make sure I wasn't losing weight and make sure I was feeling myself right. I'd end up like sort of not eating all day and then binging at night just to make sure I was getting all the calories in. It wasn't the compulsive one. It was more so the, the idea of going, no, 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 no. I'm not letting myself do this again sort of thing. So it was, it was a very strong battle on that front of trying to do it in a healthy way. Yeah. Um, but Before I sort of proved to myself, yeah. Yeah, no, before we get into the, that first marathon, because yeah. you gave yourself a goal, which is incredible, which we'll talk about in a second. But yeah. after that, do they do they give you any strategies to move forward? Yeah, so this is where it's hard to encompass this entire journey in one small thing, but it's um, yeah. so in between every hospital admission that I had over probably the over two years I was in the hospital for 
half of it the time pretty much but there, every time I was out of hospital I was in an outpatient program so I was either doing CBT cognitive behavioral therapy I had a dietitian going the whole time I had a um, I actually had a worker from the council that would come and give mum some relief because mum was my full-time carer at the time mum had quit her jobs and mum was my full-time carer so I had a relief worker that would just come and I don't know, was pretty much a babysitter, but at the same time, she'd bring all her art supplies. So we got to make stuff. Um, So it was pretty much art therapy. Um, And then I did DBT, so dialectical behavior therapy. That was a very good, that's just a good therapy for anyone. It teaches you a lot of life skills. What is that? Um, So it's called, yeah, it's DBT, dialectical behavior therapy. And it essentially just teaches you not to react with, like to react with healthy behaviors to your emotions in many ways. So there's there's different modules. One's mindfulness, one's distress tolerance, one is interpersonal effectiveness. So like how to have arguments and receive feedback and all that sort of stuff without either lashing out or without it turning into sort of emotional turmoil. Um, so yeah, distress tolerance. And that in that we were like given a whole list of coping mechanisms, uh, mindfulness, interpersonal effectiveness. There's one more and I can't quite remember it, but yeah, there's different things that they, it, awesome life skills that they teach. I you. was just about to say that sounds like something everyone should do. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. hundred percent. Like it was, it was really good. And you've got to like keep a diary of like, here's this emotion that I felt and you have, you learn to name the emotion and you learn to feel the emotion and then go, here's how I reacted. And even when you've reacted in a bad way, you then take it back to them and go, okay, here's how I reacted. And then they go, okay, well, how are you going to react next time? And so therefore you like have that pre-planning of going, when I feel this emotion in this scenario, I know I can react in this way. Like it could be in deep breathing or like you've given, I, I used um, putty, I used ice, I use all sorts of things. It's where the weight blankets, all those sorts of things come into play um, yeah. as coping skills. So yeah, over in between all my admissions and even after my last one, I always had art therapy was one thing I adored. So I'd go in every week to have to do art therapy and we'd, we'd literally have the like an epic art room with every supply you could um, imagine to do art therapy at the hospital. Um, so yeah, I was, at least once, twice, three times a week, I was appointments, I was different um, therapies and all sorts. And I had my psychiatrist that I was seeing once or twice a week, sort of, even when I was outpatient. So Mm -hmm. I saw him daily inpatient and then twice a week outpatient, um, which there's millions of dollars down the drain, not down the drain, obviously, but no, exactly. Because you're here and you're good. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So it's like, it's, it's a um, means to an end. So when you decided you were going to run the marathon, how much yep. training <clears throat> did you have prior to the marathon? And what was your goal and how did you get, like, why did you settle on that goal? If, um, you know, if, you had, if that was your very first marathon. Okay. Um, so for context, I like the, when I started running at the age of 20, like I was very slow, which people, <laughs> I tell people now and they're like, no way. And I'm like, okay, not even kidding. I didn't have a watch. I didn't have anything that record, could record my run, but the way I would time my runs is I would press the buzzer on the oven, the timer, and then <laughs> right. I'd run out the front door and then I'd do my known route, which I knew was three Ks. 
because um, I think we'd driven the car and we'd like calculated how many kilometers it was away and back. And so I'd run my known route and then I'd come back and I'd press the timer on the oven. And so that was how I would time my run. Who needs a watch? Exactly, exactly. And like for context, I celebrated so hard the day that I ran that 3Ks. And obviously I was walking parts of this. I was unfit and I just was not a runner. Um, I did that. I covered that 3Ks in 30 minutes. Like that was my, my, my mission was to just do three Ks in 30 minutes, not five Ks. Um, and then it slowly picked up from there. And obviously I was young. I had youth on my side. Um, but then we prior to starting that marathon, I think, um, obviously I had a lot of emotional fuel at, yeah. at different points in times. And so when I ran and I was upset or I was angry, I found I could run pretty far. Um, like, and pretty far for me at that point was about 10 Ks. Um, and it would be maybe. Far. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And it would be, yeah. it would take me maybe an hour. Yeah. Um, and so I was doing that sort of thing. And then I'm pretty sure in the lead up to this marathon, I decided in May or April, June to do, and it was in November. So I had what, five months. Um, and all the information I ever got from running was out of um, Runner's World magazine. And I didn't have a set training plan or anything. And even up until that point in time, like I just had ECT. I'd just been in hospital for nine weeks. I'd pretty much done not much. Um, Mum and dad had come and cycle their ride their bike with me while I went for a few runs, but it wasn't many. And then I got every week or every every sort of month, I think it came out. I can't quite remember, but I get the Runners World magazine and I just copy the week of whatever training plan they had in there. Um, and, and so I would start up. Like, oh, and, but I didn't know how to train. And so every, I'm pretty sure my fastest run of the week, every week in the lead up to that marathon was my long run, um, which is not the way I would ever get anyone to train. <laughs> um, and my idea of intervals was, um, yeah, it was, it was stupid. Um, it, was, it, it was like, I, I kind of run hard to the, to one from one light post to the next, or I'd be listening to music. And I actually give some of this to some of my runners now, or I'd have a music fartlek. I'd run oh, like, yeah. like hard mm. for the chorus, easy for the verse and that sort of thing. But That's at the same cool. time, I'm going to yeah, use that. <laughs> I, it's good. It's a good way to do a fartlek. Um, and then you switch it up because if you run hard for the verses and easy for the chorus, the verses are usually longer than the chorus yeah. if you pick the right songs. So you can play it with it. Um, but yeah, so I was doing that sort of thing. But then I don't like the structure of my training was just because I was still very much, especially in the medial middle period there where I was training for the marathon, but I still had quite severe depression. So it would literally be wake up in the morning and what can I do today? What can I actually manage to do? And if I got out for a run, it was a win. Um, whether it was a short run or a long run, I had mum or dad cycle with me for almost every single one of my runs. So they would just come along just to make sure I didn't run away probably because um, I had a habit of doing that every time I dissociated. If I got too, emo like, too emotional, I would just dissociate and I wouldn't remember anything and I would kind of run away. Um, but they would come so with me. How do you me. get back from that? Um, unfortunately, most of the time that would accumulate, like it would... I would run away and my body and my mind's way of bringing myself back would be to self-harm. Right. And so then I would kind of come to usually in a public bathroom somewhere um, having self-harmed. And I'd often call the ambulance for myself. Um, so I'd kind of call the ambulance, they'd take me off to hospital. And then depending on how serious it was, I'd either be admitted or I'd be sent back home to mum and dad. Yeah. Um, it was usually how it went. Um, but then in the lead up to that marathon, I think I was scared about covering the distance. And obviously I, I, I seem to 
take to running fairly well, partially because it was like all I would try to do in the day. All I would try to get done every day was a run. Um, and that's kind of, it's ideal training, except for the fact that the reason I was pushing to try and do a run was because I wouldn't do anything else in the day. Mm. Um, and I had my dog, she would run with me and she's beautiful. And she was a therapy dog at that point in time. So she'd mm. come with me at all, everywhere. But um, I think I did get up to running. Like I went to go and do a 35K run about four weeks before the marathon. And I drove out to the course because it was at Lilydale in um, Melbourne. And it was up and over Mount Evelyn on like the Lilydale to Warburton. It was on a rail trail. Um, and so I went out and I went to run 35 Ks and I think I ended up running 38 Ks, um, or 39 Ks. And I was doing all my long runs. Like my mission was to try and do my long runs for some reason. I'd, I'd just settled on as close to five minute Ks as possible. And so I'd gotten up to the point where I was literally like the back end of my long runs, I was all out sprinting. And these were like, often I built up from 20 Ks. Eventually I got to 20 Ks and then 25 to 30 to 35, um, and I was, yeah, all out sprinting at the end to try and get the average pace under at around five minutes. And often I'd be like five minutes, five, 10, but I would be destroyed at the end of every long run. And so this one was four weeks before. And so then in, I hadn't, I don't think I'd set a goal time quite yet at that point. Um, but then a week before the marathon, I went and I entered a 10K race um, and I ran my 10k PB. So this was seven days before the marathon. And I ran, I think somewhere around there. And then I ran my 10k PB, which I think at that point in time, I think it was about a 41 20 um, or roundabouts. And so all of a sudden in my head, I'm like, well, I've just run my marathon PB. So I'm going to break three and a half hours. <laughs> um, oh, no, I've just run my 10k PB. I'm not having any idea that running your 10k PB has <laughs> nothing really to do with running your marathon. And especially not a week before, like it just you probably yeah. shouldn't have done it. Um, but yeah, so I decided I was going to break three and a half hours, which was 210 minutes. So all the photos of me on that day, I have like a big 210 written on my hand because um, I was just on a mission to break three and a half hours because I knew that was around about five minute case. Um, and yeah, so like it was on the day, I didn't actually look at my watch and I didn't actually pace myself. I just pretty much did what I do at every long run and took out and all out, took off at an all out sprint. Um, and I had, it was an out and back. And then I think I, I was pretty much, I think I went into the lead at some point. I'm not even, I don't remember when, um, if for the females at least. And I just remember running the whole back half of going, I think I hit my close to my 10K PB, but then like my every PB from then onwards I ran. Um, and I think my was my half, fastest half marathon by a solid 15 minutes. Um, by the time I got to the half marathon point. And so then I turned around and when you turn around at 15 Ks of this run, it's a long uphill back up to the top of Mount Evelyn and then back down. Um, and this marathon was also brutal in the fact that you got to 38 K or 37 Ks and you ran towards the finish line, got to within 20 meters of the finish line at 37 Ks. And then they sent you off for a lap of the lake. Oh, that's but not cruel. just one, not just one lap of the lake, but two laps of the lake. So you also ran past the finish line at 39 and a half Ks. And then you got to, on the third go round, you got to go through the finish line. And at that point in time, I could actually see the fact that there was a woman chasing me. Like she was still a little bit behind. Um, and so I wasn't looking at my watch. I wasn't pacing. I was just racing. I was just running as hard yeah. as I bloody well could at that point. And so, yeah, lo and behold, I ran at what, I think it was 319 on that day. <laughs> 
So yeah, it's stupid. That and blows even my I, mind. Even I look back now and I'm like, gee, that's pretty good. Yeah. Um, especially because yeah, it wasn't even a flat marathon and it was on a trail. But yeah, I didn't know that that was good. I'd never run with other people before, other than the couple of races I'd done. I didn't know what nutrition was. I didn't know what fueling or pacing or anything was, and I still didn't for the next year because the next time I ran a marathon I literally and it was a year later I literally did exactly the same thing like I trained in even more of a stupid way if you ask me because I thought I knew a bit more about what I was doing and I actually didn't um but yeah I did exactly the same thing a year later to run my next marathon and it was like that's taught me the value of just forget what other people are saying and if you know like because I had full belief in myself like the next time I ran the marathon I was like I just want to come top 25 at the Melbourne Marathon that's just what I'm going to try and do like I reckon I can do it so I'm going to go do it um and so it was and then I just remember wanting to prove other people wrong um especially (laughs) in the second marathon because I'd still never really run with people I'd had to have four months off in between the two marathons um because I was really physically unwell I had major surgery on my stomach there's another whole story there um but um in between the two so I had this major surgery like six months to the day before the marathon still signed up for the marathon because I was like well I'm gonna try and so I can only start running three months before but then yeah I just I didn't know other people I didn't run with other people I like my idea of a track session was I'd do 2k's as hard as I could on the track between every lecture at uni because at that point in time I was back studying nursing and slowly tried to get back into different things in life um And so, yeah, ran the next one, did exactly the same thing, only to then, um, and wanting to prove people wrong mid-race, because I told a guy mid-race that I'd just run a 15K PB for the first 15Ks of the marathon. And he looked at me and told me that I was going to die. And so I pretty much just then sprinted off away from him. And (laughs) (laughs) yeah, pretty much. I was like, well, (laughs) I'll prove you. Oh, it only gets better from here, folks. I love this story of Simone's. So make sure you find out what happens in part two, where we dive deep into her running, how she manages the heavy training loads and the strategies she adopts for her physical and mental health.